Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent, coming to you on this Friday evening at about 7.15 here on the East Coast in Northern Virginia. Uh, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. I have an article coming out tomorrow that I wrote uh, in the textual criticism space. I know that's a touchy issue in RB circles. Um, but I hope that it is helpful and can provide some further resource to look at. So check that out. comes out tomorrow morning at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support our ministry, one way you can do that is by signing up at Patreon. You can give a custom amount, or you can sign up for one of our tiers. And we thank you for or to the Patreon, uh, the Patreons who are there now, who are currently supporting us. We greatly appreciate that. Your contributions do help our ministry. We thank you for that. Well, all of that aside, I want to do a brief book review, another one. This is the second one that we're doing. We did Truman's book last, and this evening we'll be doing Barrett's book on the Trinity. This is Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. The, Unmani the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Forward was by Scott R. Swain. I think he teaches at RTS. Uh, this was published back in 2021, so it's been out for a couple years. But I read it maybe last year? I don't know. And I have a stack of books here I want to get through. But uh, this is... Uh, one of the ones that came out amid the classical theism controversy. And so that's really where this is focusing on as it relates to the topic at hand. One key aspect of this book that you see is what Barrett calls Trinity Drift. And, I, and actually, let me take a step back before I get into that a little bit. Barrett teaches, just some background on Barrett, Barrett teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and seems to run in the Southern Baptist circles, so that's really where he's coming from, but he seems to really be pushing for this recovery for classical theology, on, especially as it relates to the doctrine of God, but in other areas as well. So you do see this element of recovery going on here, and you see that coming out a lot here in the book. Again, the year is 2021, and that is important because this is when a lot, of, as I've said, the classical theism stuff is floating around. So we see a lot of that kind of talk of contrasting views that are deviant from, that deviate from classical orthodoxy, a biblical understanding of God, and a right understanding of historical theology surrounding these issues. So you do see this recovery aspect heavily in the book. So 2021 was a year when we did see uh, these things starting to, to come about and, and these controversies are floating around as it relates to classical theism, especially in RB circles. But uh, I think you, you do see this loss of the doctrine of God and the broader evangelical 
church, which shouldn't surprise us given the broader evangelical church uh, likely isn't Christian anyways, but you do see classical doctrines being left to the side in order to appeal to man's flesh and to keep people in the pews. So he's really trying to push for this recovery of a biblical understanding of, of God. But I think the discussion around the doctrine of God, at least right now, has calmed down quite a bit. So, you know, the, I think this book did serve its purpose in terms of getting people interested in the doctrine of God again from a broader evangelical perspective. In fact, Christianity Today gave it, I think it was Book of the Year. I'd have to go back and check, but it was it was a pretty prestigious award from Christianity Today's perspective as it relates to this book. So it, it seemed to have a pretty big impact on the evangelical world. But the conversation around classical theism, while it's still there, has died down for now. I, I just saw this evening Jeffrey Johnson over in Arkansas announced a book that he's putting out on cl classical theism. And uh, I have a feeling we will be or I will be reviewing that, uh, but we'll see. So the conversation's probably going to be starting again here soon in the debates and the, you know, the fiery discussions are going to start popping up again. But I think that right now you do see this conversation kind of dying down. Uh, but again, I think Barrett's attempt here in this book is to really address the doctrine of God in broader evangelicalism. He's not targeting any specific denomination or any specific group. He seems to be going out to broader to broader evangelicalism. Um, and I think it's good that he's looking at broader evangelicalism as long as we can assume that broader evangelicalism is actually saved. And as I've noted already, I don't I, I think we know that most of them probably aren't. Most of broader evangelicalism has anathematized themselves just because they they don't teach a biblical gospel or they're teaching a prosperity gospel or they've abandoned biblical worship and it's just become an entertainment place where true doctrine tends to be put by the wayside those things so i think while i understand where he's coming from and i think that can be helpful i think instead of trying to simply just recover a doctrine i think that it's best to focus on recovering a doctrine for the purpose of saving souls, not just merely saying, well, the church as a whole has lost this doctrine and we need to recover it. It needs to be covered for the salvation of souls, more importantly. I think you should look at an Orthodox group like an, a Reformed Baptist or Presbyterians or the like, and focusing on areas where they need to shore up their understanding of these doctrines, because we can assume that most of those people are, are saved, given the orthodoxy of the doctrine. So I, I think his focus is not necessarily bad, but I think that if we're not careful, we can focus broadly in evangelicalism, assuming that it's the true church, when it very well might not be. So I, I think we have to be careful of that. Simply just recovering a doctrine for a dead church is no good. Uh, so maybe he could have gone a little farther in that.
regard. And I think this comes from his background. I mean, he got his education, uh, he, or at least he attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's currently teaching at MBTS, which is a Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I think that his background speaks a lot to why he takes the approach that he does, right? He's the Southern Baptist Convention is going to be flowing in the broad evangelical river, so to speak. That doesn't mean that everybody in there necessarily is broadly evangelical, but I think that explains why he takes that approach. And, and as far as I know, Barrett does not hold to any Reformed confession. If you, for instance, if you look at his church's website, Emmaus Church in Kansas City, Missouri, the Our Beliefs page, it's just bullet points, really, with some headers. There's no, you know, hey, go to this confession or go to this document. It's really just some bullet points. And if they're a Southern Baptist church, then obviously they would have to hold to the Baptist faith, the message. But if you've read the Baptist faith, the message, at least the updated one, I believe it's from 2000. I could be wrong on that, but it's it's fairly recent. There's not much substance there. Not really, especially in the doctrine of God. There's not a there's not a whole lot there. So, again, I, I think his background in the circles that he goes in influences the approach that he takes to the book and who he's addressing and who he's looking at. It, more broadly speaking, but I do think he does a very good job on the doctrine of God. I think that the concepts in here can be helpful, but I think I would have focused a little bit more, been a little bit more fine-tuned on where the audience is. But be that as it may, you know, that's, that's not a huge deal, but I think it's important to note. Now, he continues to go down... And, and talk through the book about the doctrine of God. Early in the book, chapter 2 is looking into a history surrounding Nicaea. So he, he goes into this, uh, I think, a really good discussion about historical theology. And one thing I think he does well in this book is he has these little boxes on the page. Let me see if I can find one here. That help to define terms, help to define concepts uh, in a way, almost like a almost like a type of footnote, but putting it in a way that you can easily read and understand. So for instance, on page 60, he has this, and I'll hold it up here. For those who are listening on the audio, sorry, you're not going to be able to see, but on page 60, there's a box that says three to remember, and he talks about modes of subsistence, eternal relations of origin, personal properties, and then he kind of talks about why these phrases are important. So you can see at the, see at the top here. Uh, might not be very clear with the light, but you can see that there are explanations there in a separate column or a separate box that you can easily understand some of these key terms that he's talking about. I appreciate that. And I think that it shows the audience that he's going for. Yes, he's going for, I think, broader evangelicalism, but he's also writing to the layman. He's not writing at an necessarily an academic level, although there are difficult concepts in here, but the way he approaches it, he'll take kind of a story format. He'll take uh, kind of a, a fun approach to his work a little bit, like he uses the DeLorean from Back to the Future and as in some of his examples. So he's clearly appealing to more of the common man rather than the 
the academic world. And I think that's good because we do need more books like this, I think, accessible to the layman. Maybe that's one reason why people do not really dive into these things as much in the Christian world, maybe because it's it's so inaccessible. And academic books are very expensive. You know, I have some books like uh, this one here. I'll be reviewing Nice and Hot Disputes, Doctor of the Trinity. I think this is like 50 bucks. It's not cheap. It's a paperback, and it's only a couple hundred so pages. You know, so some of these academic books are, are quite expensive. And so I, I think that might be a reason why people might not read these things as much as they could. But a book like this makes it very accessible to the layman. So the layman is able to be introduced to this terminology, be introduced to these terms. And so I, I think it's a way for uh, people to be introduced to these difficult concepts and the historical categories and players in a way that kind of, you know, gets them in a, at the ground level. So I think that this book is great for giving to someone new to the faith or new to the Trinity. Um, and it, it because it's written in this way to define key terms. It has those helpful guides. It's written like a, a basic 101 textbook, right, in a sense. So I, I think that it can be helpful in that way. It's not written like a Stephen Doobie on Christology where he's assuming you know a lot of the concepts before going into this. He's not redefining a lot of things at the ground level. Uh, so, but Barrett takes quite a bit of time to define basic terms and define basic concepts. So it's a great book to give somebody who's new to this. This would probably be the book I would give them if they were brand new maybe brand new to the faith and they're learning about these things more or they want to learn more about these things, this is a good place to start if you're not familiar or haven't really been immersed in these things for very long. Um, on page 66, page 66, uh, let's see, page 66, he talks about a hermeneutic that we should have. He talk, He's doing this in context of creeds and uh, confessions or creeds, at least in this case, he says, quote, on page 66 says, quote, our default instinct should not be a hermeneutic of suspicion, but a hermeneutic of trust, one that breeds humility at, in eagerness to sit as a pupil at the feet of orthodoxy rather than stand over it as its Lord. So that any time we hear anyone, no matter how many degrees they have attached to their name, dismiss or reject the creed. Our natural apostolic instinct should kick in, and we should ask, Brother, sister, why is, our why is your first instinct to distrust the God of our fathers and their credo? End quote. I think that's a very helpful take that he goes into here, and I appreciate that he's coming at this not just, and he's talking, I believe he's talking about the Nicene Creed here, but he, he's trying to help us understand the importance of things like creeds. Why is the Nicene Creed important? And that we shouldn't just be quick to criticize it. It doesn't mean that scripture becomes secondary, but we should be able to assume that God has led his church and that he has provided biblical doctrine in a correct way in these ecumenical creeds and confessions 
that comport with the scriptures? Why would we immediately jump into doubting the orthodoxy of these creeds? It's one thing to not understand the concepts that are found in the creeds. That's something that you're going to find very common. I know that people have stumbled over the 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 term Catholic in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and I think and just thinking that's referring to the Catholic Church, not understanding the historical significance of that terminology. And then you have to you know work them through that and explain it to them. But I do think that we do have to be careful not to come to the creeds the orthodox creeds, the biblical creeds, with suspicion. Yes, they are not over scripture, but we should be able to safely assume that they are teaching what the Bible presents to us. We don't have any reason to doubt that they are teaching other than what the scriptures teach. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be good Bereans and examine things in the scriptures, but I think we shouldn't be so quick to judge the confessions and the creeds and those who put them together and those who formulated the doctrine, and i got to be careful using that term formulate. When I use formulate, I'm not saying that uh, they came up with those doctrines as if they didn't exist before, but what I'm referring to is really more putting them together in a way that is systematic, coherent, working them out, fleshing them out more than maybe they have before, but those doctrines have always been there since they come from Scripture. But I think we do have to be careful not to have this hermeneutic of criticism, as Barrett uh, is talking about here with the Nicene Creed. We should be willing to trust those men that they have indeed brought us biblical orthodoxy. So we, we have to be careful that because I think all too often there is this criticism of things like Nicaea. We have this overcritical mindset of the church. And that doesn't, again, this doesn't mean the church supersedes scripture, but if you have this overcritical mindset, it can lead to this biblicist mindset where it's just me, my Bible, and pure reason. And then all of a sudden you're way over here and a different doctrine of God, different understanding of the gospel, different understanding of Jesus, different God altogether, different Christ, different atonement. And then you're on your way to hell because you don't believe what the scriptures say. So we have to be very careful about that, uh, that we we balance between being good brands, or we're examining things that people say with the scriptures, and always having a critical mindset of orthodoxy. We have to be really careful to balance between those things. These are very helpful guides, these creeds, that codify biblical truth and help us to understand these difficult concepts in the scriptures in a very easy way that we would have to do the work of pulling through the scriptures and studying one verse over here with another verse over here and putting all of those things together. These men have already done it for us in a very easy to read and very simple fashion, quote unquote simple, as it relates to uh, the length and and just focusing on the concepts without going too much into the weeds. So you can confess what the scriptures say, and then you can flesh it out later in your own for further study. It's very helpful for us. We should not be quick to, to jump all over those creeds. They're very, very helpful to us.
And then later on in the book, Barrett, after discussing problems of losing the doctrine of God, he discusses how to recover it. And he goes over basic Trinitarianism. Uh, for instance, on pages 138, 139, he spends time discussing how God can be simple, not composed of parts, and three persons at the same time. So he's trying to get people to, you know, to those of us who have been studying these things for a while, it, it you know, we, we can explain that at a, at a high level. And those things kind of roll off the tongue because we've studied. But if someone's reading this book, who's never heard these things before, or never really thought through these issues, this is the kind of level of material that you're wanting them to be introduced to. It's just the basic understanding of God is one, he's also three, and how does that work? Biblically speaking, logically speaking, philosophically speaking, how does all of that work out? And Barrett is attempting to do that, at least at a basic level. Now, in chapter 8, and I'm jumping all over the place, I'm not doing an exhaustive review of the book, obviously, but I think chapter 8 really dives into the meat of the book. I think it's the most important chapter in the book at least in my opinion. And it's the one where he talks about the subordination of the sun. This is a pretty touchy topic as well. Classical theism as it relates to divine simplicity, doctrine of God, things like that, are definitely controversial. But I think, at least in Reformed Baptist circles, the subordination of the sun is definitely a controversial topic and has been in more recent years. Uh, and it, it keeps coming up. And this is the notion that God is somehow e eternally subordinate to the Father as per his deity, right? Now, you have different, you have different levels that you have people who believe in a real ontological subordination. You have those who believe that he is just, Christ is just functionally subordinate while being co-equal with the Father. So you have different flavors, and I think there might be more, but EFS or eternal functional subordination, I think is what you're by and large going to find. Um, but this is subordination ad intra in God, not just as it relates to the economy or with Christ taking on another, you know, his human, uh, his human form. But a passage that's used to support at least functional subordinationism is 1 Corinthians 11, 2-3. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of, every, and the head of Christ is God. That's verses 2-3. So material from those two verses is used in support of functional subordinationism. And in the context here, this is Paul giving instructions for worship, particularly around head coverings for women in the church. So this is him really jumping into the conversation there and laying out those principles as it relates to head coverings in the church and the, the roles of men and women there. But this is used to prove that Christ submits to the Father ad intra, meaning within God, within himself, not outside, within the Trinity. And 
and again, you do have this distinction between ontological subordinationism and functional subordinationism. And, and those would have to be fleshed out in order to address which one you're talking about. But either way, they do pose problems. And I think Barrett does a really good job of talking about uh, some of the problems with at least functional subordination. Uh, for instance, if how can we truly distinguish, and this is, this is me, this isn't Barrett talking, but how can we truly distinguish a function of the ad intra trinity from the very being of God if we believe in simplicity that God is not composed of parts, we can't say there's something any person of the Trinity does ad intra that is not God. Or we have made God function and essence. So you've are, you start to encroach upon simplicity at that point if you start to say that God is functionally subordinate. And then you obviously have the problem of multiple wills, and that's really where Barrett goes in here, at least to some extent that if Christ is willingly submitting himself to the Father, then that implies, ad intra, then that implies that there is a separate will, wills in God. Christ has his own will ad intra, and the Father has his own will. Again, now you're encroaching on divine simplicity. So you have to be really careful about that. But with all that said, I, I do think Barrett does a pretty good job uh, addressing some of these things. Um, a key argument, uh, again, is how there would be multiple wills in God. He talks about this on page 229, which I think is is really helpful here. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Page 229. He says this, quote, As soon as you insert gradations of authority within the imminent trinity, Gradations that are person-defining and therefore essential for the Trinity to be a Trinity, you forfeit one will in God. You forfeit the Trinity's one simple essence. Our God is simply Trinity, no more. End quote. So as soon as it becomes vital for God to be God, to have some sort of gradations of authority, now you have undermined divine simplicity. Now the persons of the Trinity are no longer co-equal with one another. Now you have really impl implied in that is three gods, because now you have three wills, it implies three minds, you have three beings. You know, you, you've undermined uh, a key aspect of classical theism. Now, one criticism uh, I will talk about here as it relates to this discussion about subordinationism he does use a quote from John Owen to try and uh, use it as an argument against eternal functional subordination. And we'll go back to page 229 and I'll read that so you can kind of see what I'm talking about here. Uh, he says, quote, John Owen says that the persons are, quote, undivided in their operations, acting all by the same will, the same wisdom, the same power. Every person, therefore, is the author of every work of God because each person is God and the divine nature is the same undivided principle of all divine operations. And this ariseth from the unity of the person in the same essence, end quote. So Barrett uses this as an argument against what he calls EFS, or eternal functional subordinationism. The only thing I would say to that is I don't think this properly represents Owen because 
according to Carl Truman in the book we looked at last time, or the, our last book review, The Claims of Truth, John Owen's Trinitarian Theology, Truman actually addresses this. So Owen spends a lot, spends a lot of time talking about the covenant of redemption. And I think he was trying to work through some of these issues as it relates to, okay, if a covenant, at least from Owen's perspective, if a covenant involves someone submitting to the terms of that covenant in the covenant of redemption between the father and the son, it, and that for act to actually be a covenant, wouldn't that mean that the son would have to somehow submit to that covenant or submit to the father? And it seems that Owen did believe in some sort of functional subordinationism. Now, I want to read a little bit here from Truman. This is from page 131 of The Claims of Truth by Truman. He says, quote, Within this general category of covenant, there is a more specific subset that involves three distinct elements, a proposal of service, a promise of reward and an acceptance of the proposal. This type of covenant involves a functional subordination of one party to the other, although this is determined by voluntary terms of the covenant itself and thus involves no necessary natural ontological subordination. It is to this type of covenant that the covenant of redemption belongs. This is clear from the way in which Owen, with his typical precision, divides the covenant of redemption into two subsections, the role of God the Father in appointing Christ as mediator and promising that he would protect, strengthen, and help him in the accomplishment of his work, and that his mission would be successful and achieve its purpose, and the voluntary acceptance of the role of the mediator by the Son. Thus, the covenant involves the Father and Son as covenanting parties and creates a voluntary hierarchy within the Trinity whereby the Son is officially subordinate to the Father while remaining equal to him in terms of his being or substance, end quote. So I think that Owen would likely not agree with Barrett here, although Owen, John Owen, would not take the view of, I, I think, leading... EFS proponents today, like a Bruce Ware or a Owen Strand, who is Bruce Ware's son-in-law, as it relates to these matters, because at least Owen Strand does not believe in classical theism, although he claims to, and that's a discussion for another day. But John Owen was much more orthodox and consistent. I think this would just, I could easily just write this off as an inconsistency in Owen's theology. He's trying to work through these understandings of the Trinity, the ad intra Trinity, and how the covenant of redemption works. Uh, but I, I would chalk that up as just being inconsistent, because if you read his understandings of the doctrine of the Trinity, what he believed about simplicity and an orthodox doctrine of God, he's very solid, very biblical, and writes quite extensively on the topic. Uh, so I would chalk this up as just being inconsistent. But I don't think it's fair to use Owen as a as a way or as evidence against EFS because Owen actually might agree in principle with certain aspects of the view. So I think we just have to be careful historically that we don't uh, use sources out of context like that. So we, we do have to be careful about that. And that might just be Barrett didn't know. Maybe Barrett didn't know about that. I mean, I didn't know Owen believed this. I was actually surprised when I read this 
just like, oh, okay, Owen, that's that's an interesting view that you're taking. But, you know, just you learn more as you read more. You know, it, that's just kind of how it is. So I don't want to be too hard on Barrett. But the fact remains, I think that um, probably wouldn't have been a good idea to use Owen there. Um, but and, and thankfully, Barrett doesn't rely on Owen for his entire rebuttal against subordinationism. And he does go to scripture in the early church, especially looking at Gregory of Nyssa, fourth century church father, one of the Cappadocian fathers. Um, so he, he doesn't rely on Owen entirely, but just mentioned that in passing. Uh, and then finally here, Barrett talks about inseparable operations. And I think this is toward the end of the book. And I think this is one of the most difficult topics to address as it relates to the doctrine of God. Because it requires us to think in a way that is so unlike our own experience. And I, you know, I have another book here I'll be reviewing at some point. Uh, the Same God Who Works All Things by Adonis Vidu. He was another, you know, broad evangelical, but holds to a classical doctrine of God. But this is on the doctrine of inseparable operations. The doctrine that God works ad extra or outside of himself all the same things. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in all the same works outside of themselves. Ad intra, within the Trinity, they are distinct. The works of God ad intra are the subsisting of the three persons, the Father begetting the Son, the Father and Son spirating the Spirit. Those are distinct uh, works ad intra. We don't conflate them. However, ad extra, the works are the same. The works are the same. We have to say that because if we believe God is one simple will, God must have one simple power. Or now you have, again, implying that there are three wills in God, right? And these aren't relational distinctions either. So you have to be really careful not to divide God's actions up in that way, uh, or you're going to divide God himself. So I, I do think uh, Barrett tries to tackle that on. Um, so it's something that, uh, you know, he, he kind of tries to, to bring into the layman, right? Introducing them to these difficult doctrines. Because like a book, a book like this, the same God who works all things, I'm not giving to a, um, a new Christian. It's just not happening because it, it's too complicated. It's, I mean, even for someone who's read quite a bit on the doctrine of God before coming to this book, had a hard time working through it and, you know, maybe having to go back and reread certain aspects of it and really think through these things. Um, so he kind of whets the appetite, I think, for the layman on this issue. But I, I hope that's been helpful. Shorter episode today. Um, Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Go pick it up. I think it's, it's less than $20 online. Um, paperback, really cheap. Uh, but I, I think a very good, helpful work. This is, I think for pastors, a great book to give to people at an introductory level. Maybe if you're doing a Sunday school class on uh, systematic theology and you're getting through God, this is a great book to use to help go through that topic uh, in a way that is not daunting, <laughs> or at least to a large extent. So really helpful book, I think. Um, so. Pick it up, Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Well, everyone, have a great weekend. Lord willing, we'll be back next week. We're going to be diving, hopefully, 
into some Richard Dawkins next week. Richard Dawkins put out uh, an episode he did. I guess he has his own show and he put out a clip to about he talks about divine simplicity in this clip and why you know he thinks it's absurd. But uh, I'm going to try to work through some of that and we'll uh, take a look at it. But with that, everyone, have a great weekend uh, and a great Lord's Day on Sunday. And hopefully we will be back next week. Thanks.